Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A prophet gathered people to do difficult, painful, and dangerous work, which was to be carried out according to specific instructions. He said, I am going to do this work, no matter what the cost, no matter how long it takes, according to the instructions given me. When his tribe heard the instructions, they said, that's your choice. We want nothing to do with you. When his friends heard it, they agreed that it was a good idea, but counseled him, if you do it as instructed, you will end up alone. Several years passed and the prophet did as he was instructed. It was indeed difficult, painful, and exceedingly dangerous but he survived. Many people watched the prophet and advised the prophet, and some tried to do things for him, but in all that time, no one was willing to join the prophet in doing what he did as he was instructed, which was indeed difficult, painful, and exceedingly dangerous. Some tried to convince him to alter the instructions subtract or add to them. When he would not listen, they became frustrated or angry, in part because he would not listen, but mostly because they did not like the instructions and his stubbornness was embarrassing. That's your choice, they cowered, shunning prophetic instruction with empty platitudes. Everyone is free to do what they want. Apparently so. No shame and no game. Then there were those who demanded the lie of equality. But how could they demand equality from their slave? The prophet who was doing difficult, painful, and exceedingly dangerous work all those years and barely managed to survive while others were saving him from the sidelines. You can't watch Jordan score 60 points from your seat on the bench and then bitch that you are his equal because you know more about a game that you are not playing. You can't watch a janitor clean all the toilets in the building and then demand equality from him while criticizing his work while you are sitting on it. You can't watch a secretary do all the administrative work for everyone, including you, and then demand that he is not treating you as his equal because in doing what he did as he was instructed, the instructions offended you. You are not helping. And when you help, your help is not the same 
as doing. Chipping in is not all in. What is that they used to say in Sunday school? Church is not a social club. When it comes to the pearl, it's all or nothing, Habibi. If you are still talking about equality, you are not on the bench. You are fast asleep dreaming. Equality is not a thing to be grasped because equality is a fallacy. I am talking about respect. It is true that respect cannot be demanded. It is an absolute lie that respect can be earned. A prophet is not without honor, except among those without honor. Respect is sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Richard and I discuss Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 517 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In the past, if you go back to some of the earliest episodes of the Bible as Literature podcast, we've used terminology such as the word story, not just story. We've even talked about storyline. But over the course of the years, books have been written Work has been done, and more so than the rise of Scripture, Father Paul's project, Decoding Genesis, in which he talks again about not just Genesis 1 through 4 or Genesis 1 through 11, but about the itinerary of a word. And I won't even say a word personally. I myself don't even like the term word. I keep pushing harder and harder to get away from anything that alludes to any kind of construct. Because when you allow for a construct, you're giving space for people to breathe, to create something they can control. And the harder I push in this direction, the more aware I become of how far out in outer space other people are when they talk. A storyline is something you dream up. When we say storyline, you're already creating something in your mind and you're extracting it. However, when you identify a root or a term, I'm going to use an English word right now. And we can talk strictly about the Greek because there's an example in the Greek that will come up today that's incontrovertible. And we don't have to talk about what we think it means because what we think it means is utterly irrelevant because it's there, it's found. And there's no debate about what the word found means because it's there, it's an artifact. We can go to the beach and pick up a shell. Doesn't matter what you or I think, if we find a shell there, we found a shell. If you ask someone from Harvard, which has become an irrelevant institution... 
they'll invent a gray area, which is the domain of God, not of men. The gray area is left for the judgment. People love to imagine there's a gray area to discuss because we like to play God. We have no right to play God. The wheat and the chaff is his business. Our business is to obey the commandment. So we deal with his commands, which are artifacts. So you go to the beach, there's a seashell. It's there. You have to deal with what's there. So there are artifacts in the text. There are terms. We find an itinerary. A word appears. In chapter 5 of Luke, there are words that appear again and again and again. Someone hearing it. In Greek, forget Hebrew, forget the Arabic cognate. Someone hearing it in Greek, if they don't have wax in their ears, and if they aren't thinking, has to deal with these artifacts, which are there. There's an itinerary of artifacts, of terms, of roots. That's why it's about the archaeology of words, of terms, I say the archaeology of a text because the word text deflates the Occidental terminology of Western scholarship because you want to say story, you want to say narrative, you want to say all of these things. The work that I've been doing is just trying to unearth facts because nobody in this country cares because you're interested in Greek philosophy. You don't want to bother with the Hebrew text. You want to ignore the Arabic language because your premise is not the text. Your premise is yourself. You think knowledge is valuable. Not so. Knowledge is not valuable. The text is valuable, which means someone who knows nothing, if they look at the text, can discover the connection between a Greek word and a word in Hebrew that corresponds to it via the Septuagint, they can discover how it relates to the Arabic, how it may relate to the Quran, and you don't want to hear about the Quran because your reference is not the text, your reference is yourself and your education and your identity. But your education and your identity is no reference in the text. You want to say that you have to be a certain something in order to hear the text. That's not so. Someone could land in a spaceship from Mars and find a seashell on the beach. A six-year-old from Ireland could visit the beach and find a seashell. A Muslim or an atheist could visit the same beach and find a seashell. And if the seashell is related to another artifact that was picked up by someone from another religion who spoke a different language, so it is. That's what we're talking about when you're dealing with a text. We don't need theories. We don't need knowledge. We need time and effort. I don't speak multiple languages and I'm not an expert in any of these languages. I'm just familiar with the text, and I've been working at it for a long time. 
I keep saying it in the intros, but no one believes me. I am a punk from the West Side. Today in Minnesota, people don't even know there's a West Side. They confuse it with West St. Paul. And those who know there's a West Side are afraid to go there. That is where I come from. And as a West Sider, the only thing that disgusts me more than elitism are the elites who try to save me from my disgust of their elitism. Unfortunately for them, the Bible is not rocket science. But you have to divest yourself of your whatever and submit. But you won't. Because every time I mention the Hadith, every time I mention a rabbi, when you hear the word Qur'an, when I point out to you that the Septuagint is not the reference, even if Luke was looking at the Septuagint, it bugs you. Not only because Greek is easier than Hebrew, because you want to say that it's your text, it bugs you. And that's the problem old-fashioned kind of archaeology was British people going into the Middle East, digging up gold stuff and decorating their houses. That's how they used to do archaeology. They didn't care what kind of gold stuff it was. They liked pretty gold things, so they would dig up pretty gold things. People want to do that with the Bible. They want to pick out the stuff that sounds coolest to them. Serious archaeologists keep it in place. Where does this come from? Where was this situated? Once you extract it, you lose all the information about the purpose of the object. That's how archaeology works. There's the first word, and there's the second word, and there's the third word, and there's the fourth word. It's always in a syntax. When this word appears in Mark, this is what it sounds like. When this word appears in Luke, here's what it sounds like. It's all Greek. Why does it matter? There's a syntax. That's why an itinerary of a word matters so much, because as you read a text from beginning to end in the order it's presented, its syntax adds up. And so knowledge of the entire text is necessary to get you to the point that you're at. So when we talk about etymology, realize we're doing etymology, but not at the expense of the text. Storyline is a construct, but the text is not a construct. The text is there. And this word does not appear as the first word in the book. It appears as the 2,700th word. Does that matter for understanding Luke? Absolutely. It absolutely matters. That's why syntax and context is everything in what we've been looking at. So as we're understanding these words, please do your homework. When we talk about a word, go see where else does this word appear and what does it mean in that syntax? And what is the itinerary of this word as it moves through Scripture? A great example of what you're saying in the Greek, which Father Paul has insisted upon for years, for as long as I've heard Father Paul teach, is this word evangelion, which Western scholarship persists in translating as good news. I can't find a colonial Bible that doesn't translate evangelion as good news. So you have the prefix ev, but what does it mean to say evangelion? Why isn't it the eulogy, the evlogia, 
why aren't we talking about a praiseworthy or commendable word when we're referring to the gospel? Why is it the evangelion? And how can something, as you said, when we're talking about syntax and placement within a grouping of words, meaning Paul's teaching, the word of the cross, how can that be a good message? What are we talking about? Maybe it's commendable. What are we talking about? It's news. It's commendable news. It's news we're to submit to. How are we calling it good within the context of Galatians or Romans or 1 Corinthians? So your point about placement and usage is critical. Theology makes it good news because they strip the cross of its power with a realized eschatology. They've done it since the 4th century because they put the cross on the chariot and the shield. And then it becomes good news. I don't even need to talk about current events in the Middle East to make this point. We can go back to Justinian, who did, in about a week, what can't be accomplished today in two months. So your point is well taken. Now, what's interesting about this word evangelion is then you go back and you look at, you know, this Hebrew root, bet, sheen, resh, which is the same in Arabic as, you know, Rich, we've talked about this, bishara. The original Hebrew, it's news in Arabic. It's news. So the Greek stands on its own, but then when you hear it Semitically, when you're hearing Paul's letters you realize, I don't know if it's good news. If you are a slave under the boot, it's not that you're being set free. You have to hear it against the backdrop of Exodus. Someone is holding your leash in Egypt, and now someone else is holding your leash, which is news. So your point is extremely important. And I want to add to it that it functions in the Greek when you hear Paul's letters because Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians was meant to be heard. You know, to Greek-speaking Romans. That's the point that is critical here. You don't need to speak Hebrew to hear Galatians. I mean, otherwise, what's the point? I think you've been pretty consistent, Richard, in making this point. However, Galatians is an invitation to hear Exodus in Hebrew. The Septuagint rendering of Exodus is an invitation to learn Hebrew. So if we're hearing Luke in Greek, and we're trying to teach and to submit to Luke, and part of this work is learning the Semitic languages and learning to hear Greek Semitically, why not look at how the translators of the Septuagint handled the Hebrew? After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. 
there it is. There are a few terms here that I want to talk about, but after that big soap opera in the first five minutes about the itinerary of a word, I know. What's the big deal, Father Mark? He's sitting. People sit. Well, with all due respect, it's a huge deal that he's sitting because this word kathime is the same word that appeared in verse 17. It's the exact same word. It's a different Greek word than what was used to refer to the stretcher being set down. They aren't the same term. But this is the same word that was used to describe the Pharisees and the teachers of the law sitting down. And remember, when yeshab is aligned to different terms for sitting, the genius of the translators of the Hebrew is that its usage is different. In this case, the alignment is different than it is in other cases. And here it pertains to the Lord appearing in order to either heal or to judge. Two sides of the same coin. I'm not going to go through all the examples because we don't want to be here for 45 minutes reading verses from the Old Testament. I could do it. I would enjoy it. But let's not. There are other cases where Yeshab pertains to one being seated in the throne. But that's not how Kathime is rendered. It happens to be related to the term that was used for setting the stretcher in front of Jesus. Interesting. Not so here. Which means that we have Levi, the tax collector, whose name also pertains to the priesthood, being seated in anticipation of healing or judgment, just like we had in verse 17, the Pharisees and the lawgivers. That's not an interpretation. Now, it's not that we haven't gone out of bounds and given our opinion on the podcast over the years. I'm pointing out that I've just stated two facts, not interpretations, archaeological facts. One, that it's the same term, kathime, that appears twice in five. So there's an itinerary. And the concept of sitting has come up more than once because we've demonstrated that there's a connection to the concept of sitting with therapia earlier in the chapter. Okay, so there's something going on with sitting. And other words for sitting have appeared in the chapter. Different Greek terms that align to yeshab. These are all facts. What they mean is debatable, but they are facts. Another fact here is that in the case of kathime, when you look to its usage in Greek in the Septuagint, even without the Hebrew, we're dealing with verses where the Lord appears to heal or to judge. And then you can look at the Hebrew to get an even deeper understanding of how this works Semitically. And then you can look at the cognate. And these are all facts. And then you can come back to Luke and start to think about what's going on in Luke where the Greek is primary. And we can hear Luke now and see how these characters behave once the Lord comes to the one who is sitting to bring either judgment or healing. And again, hearing the story of Luke, the power of the Lord was present before Jesus came to address 
those who were sitting in verse 17. Do not get theological and say, oh, Jesus is the Lord who's coming. No, the power of the Lord was already at work. Jesus himself had to submit to that power. And now he's coming to Levi. The other thing that's interesting, I mentioned that his name was Levi, which is the priesthood. The word for name in Greek, onoma, in Hebrew, of course, is Shem, the significant, important word. It carries the importance of standing and reputation and fame. Father Paul spends a lot of time on this in his podcasts and in his books. It's connected to the Arabic ism. There's plenty of examples in the Old Testament, but it's another example where there's a direct correspondence to the Arabic. The other term that jumped out at me, having importance here, and it shows you how the Hebrew very often, like other Semitic languages, is very expansive. And that's what gives both Hebrew and Arabic a poetic force that is unparalleled. On the one hand, the range of the triliteral, the fact that you have a variety of terms that can hit the same concept to be very precise is very interesting. We hear the word halak in Hebrew and we think of walking, but walking relates very much to obedience. So this word akulotheo means to follow, to go after, and to obey. And the word halak, as we've talked about in the past, means to walk, to go away, to disappear, to be diminished, because you're walking towards the horizon. When you obey, you are diminished. You yourself are not the reference. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go, lek with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. Again, it's linked to obedience to what is uttered, to following and obeying this word. You do what you're told. It's very powerful. Jesus is coming with the power of the Lord to which he submitted. He is coming to Levi, who is positioned in opposition to the Pharisees and the law teachers, he is a corrupt man of the priestly line who is sitting in a tax booth and he is challenging him to walk in obedience to the command which is wielded with the power to which Jesus himself submitted, which will diminish Levi, but cause the will of God to stand out. Like you said, he's a tax collector, but he collects taxes on behalf of the Romans. The fact that he's Levi here and he's named Matthew elsewhere, he's a priest who is supposed to be overseeing the house of God, the bait, the services thereof, and he's collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. Previous to this, every Jew, no matter where they lived, had to pay a tax to the temple. That was a part of being a Jew, as you had to pay your dues, so to speak, as you had to pay this temple tax. And it was the Levites who benefited because they were the ones who were in the temple. So he's collecting all this money, 
and he's sitting. He doesn't pretend to be a teacher. And this is the one that gets addressed. Again, these words that we have to really be paying attention to, telonion, the customs place. It only appears three times in the New Testament, and it's always in the scene, whether it's Matthew in the books of Matthew and Mark or here Levi. The one who's sitting collecting taxes, collecting worldly things, is the one who Jesus addresses. Such a contrast to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were important figures in the last one, who caused all the ruckus and started the argument and had the whole discussion, who does this guy think he is? And it was because of those guys sitting around. Here's another guy sitting around. So then the question that we want to answer is when Jesus says, follow me, does Levi say, who is this man who says that I'm supposed to follow him? Now we're going to see what Levi's response is when he's given this specific commandment. Is he going to respond like the teachers of the law who already consider themselves something? Or like the man on the stretcher who gets up and picks up his stretcher? Which way is he going to go? Is he going to go like Peter, who gave up his boats to follow? Or is he going to go with these people who sat and decided to continue to sit after Jesus gave them a commandment. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Right out of the gate, this word, katalipo, left behind. What is the term? What is the root? Let's just talk about the word before we start getting wistful about how much he loves Jesus. One of the words in Hebrew that it could relate to is azab. The other term I want to talk about today is she'ar, which means to be left, to stay back or remain. And there are plenty of examples in Arabic. Sa'ira means to be left over. For example, you could say ayam sa'ira, which means ongoing days. You could also use it to refer to Money in circulation, meaning when something is ongoing or still in circulation, it's remaining. That would correspond more to the idea of having some kind of a remnant, something that's continuing. But that's not the use of katalipo that we're talking about here. There's nothing remaining. He's abandoning something. What's the use case? You have to do the word study. This is the work of the clergy. This is what we're talking about when we say the Bible is literature. It is lexicography. So the other term that remains, ironically, is this word azab in Hebrew. Azab with an ayn. And it means to leave behind, to leave over, to abandon. And this corresponds, this word which appears in the Septuagint, corresponds to the function that Luke is using in the Greek when he says katalipon, because Levi, upon hearing the power of the Lord, which Jesus is conveying and rendering the command, when he tells him, follow me, Walk behind me, which is the implication 
if we're hearing the Greek Semitically, you have to walk according to what I'm telling you. You have to obey me. You have to follow me. When he hears this, he abandons his post as a tax collector. And that is the sense of this word azab. Okay, so let me just give an example. Following the Tarazian rule of the first usage defines the word. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. You abandon your tribe. You abandon your household. You no longer pertain to your parentage. You are joined to your wife and they shall become at one. One flesh, which is at one. You can't become philosophically one. There's no one being. It's Greek philosophy. There it is. He is abandoning his post in order to become a son, not in the Roman household of Flavius, but in the Roman household of Jesus Christ. That's something. It's beautiful. The other thing, got up is such a dumb expression. The word is anastas. So he abandoned everything, which means everything behind him was laid waste. There's nothing left behind. And then we hear this word, anastas, which corresponds to qum. And here, when you hear this against the backdrop of the Old Testament, I keep saying it, but it must be said. In this sense, nothing stands out but the power of the Lord. The command of the Most High is the only reference. And that's just beautiful, especially when you take a step back to the paralytic standing up. So you have two things. You have sitting and standing, sitting and standing, sitting and standing in Luke. That's the itinerary of the only thing standing up being the power of the Lord, which is his instruction. You can debate what I'm saying, but you can't debate the artifacts that I'm identifying for you. And this is the point that was raised at the beginning of the previous pericope. Who was Jesus there to heal? I don't know. Who stood up at the end and walked away healed? You tell me. And lest you think the healing only works for people who are sick, whose friends have to carry them in, Yire is what Jesus says to him. But when he says, Yire, get up, the word that describes his motion is Anastas. Once you read this about Levi, you realize that had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law listened to the word, they also could have gotten up. But they didn't. They just sat and talked. This root halach means go, hit halach in Hebrew, which literally means to walk around. Father Paul notes that when it's used, it's always people who are walking according to the word, walking in obedience. You need the etymology to understand how this relates to just the act of walking. It's walking around. But you have to understand that it's in obedience to the word. You need both the context and syntax as well as the etymology to understand where this comes from. And this one is beautiful because of how his station, his situation, and his reaction relate to the ones before. So you can't just take 
verses 27 and 28 and say, oh, here we have the story of Levi. Because the story of Levi doesn't make sense unless you look at the previous pericope, starting at Luke 5.17. You have to hear those 10 verses. And this is always what's so sad, Father, whenever I'm called to preach, that I have to preach, and we have this measly little lectionary reading of, you know, a dozen verses at most, and then you can preach on that. But, you know, the psalm is reduced to one verse. The Old Testament reading is reduced to the psalm verses you say before and after it, and the epistle and gospel are reduced to a dozen verses. It's really a pity because you don't have that to draw on. So whenever I have to talk about a small lectionary chunk, I have to talk about three chapters just so people can understand where this is coming from. And then if there are particular words, I have to talk about where those words correspond to similar contexts in Scripture, and it takes a lot of work just to deliver what the Word is saying. Forget meaning, forget you know what you're going to do with this. Just understand it. Please let it soak in. And just obey it. That's why after more than two decades of preaching and being a pastor, I completely submit to what Father Paul is saying, that the sermon is a fraud. You can't convey the meaning of Scripture to people. It's a hoax. What you can do is convey facts to them so that they can on their own, hear Scripture if they're willing to make the effort or not. That's the point. I think that's the key. When you try to convey what Scripture is saying, you are imposing yourself. And that's a big no-no. When you convey the consonantal roots and you give facts to people, you point out this root has an itinerary. Did you hear that? This root has a function. Did you notice that? It connects here and here. This is how it's used. This is how it relates between these two texts. This is how it relates to other sacred texts in other traditions. When you share this information, you equip the saints for the hearing of God's debarim on their own dime. Because, as Paul teaches, each is responsible to bear his own burden. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.